if you ever see me dancing around in pants and bra, it is because I want to wear the pants and bra. It's not because somebody... For all my multi-passionate creatives out there, this one's for you. Chibundu Onuzo signed her first book deal at 19. She was awarded a PhD in history from King's College London, won the 2020 American Black Film Festival's HBO short film competition, and was longlisted for a BAFTA. Chibundu is also a singer-songwriter and won the Drake Yolanda Music Award in 2021. I love that. Multi-passionate person. Trademark yes. Saha. And you have to have mm. a sense of self worth that is rooted not in the fluctuations of your career. The blow was so was so mm. deep. And for me actually that was a catalyst for me to go and have therapy, actually, and sort of speak to someone about this up and down that um mm. you know it made me I'm going to be okay. Welcome to Daring Forward, where we feature ordinary women doing extraordinary things and learn practical lessons and action steps to help you live courageously. I'm your host, Sahar Twesajay. Now, if you're ready, let's dare forward. For all my multi-passionate creatives out there, this one's for you. In today's episode, our guest helps us get to the core of what it takes to be successful with multiple passions. Chibundu Onuzo grew up in Lagos, Nigeria and moved to the UK in 2005, where she then signed her first book deal at 19. Her first novel, The Spider King's Daughter, won the Betty Trask Award and was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Commonwealth Book Prize. Chibundu's second novel, Welcome to Lagos, was published by Faber in 2017, and in June 2018, Chibundu was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature as part of its 40 Under 40 initiative. In the same year, she was awarded a PhD in history from King's College London for her research on the West African Students' Union. In 2020, Dulapo is Fine, a short film which Onuzu co-wrote, co-produced, and composed in the film score for, won the 2020 American Black Film Festival's HBO short film competition and was longlisted for a BAFTA in 2021. Chibundu is also a singer-songwriter and won the Drake Yolanda Music Award in 2021. Snap! This girl can pack a punch. Chibundu, welcome to Daring Forward. I am so excited to have you on the show. So I know from your story that you grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. Can you tell me what was that like growing up? Um, so yeah, I grew up in Lagos in the 90s. So as the youngest of four children, so I'm the baby of the family. Apparently it shows in my Aww. behavior, but it's lies. It's all lies. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and we had a lot of extended family living with us and that was very normal mm -hmm. um, I remember when I came to England for boarding school that was the first time I'd actually had my own bed to myself so we grew up with all of my cousins staying with us um, and so I guess I've always had like a broad sense of family like my family is not just my nuclear family it's my cousins it's my mm. aunties it's all the people who pass through our house and I'm actually really quite grateful for that typically African, I suppose, um, um, childhood. We're, we're never lacking in company as Africans, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you grew up in Lagos and then you moved here to the UK. So you actually came here and joined boarding school? Yes. So when I was 14, I moved to England. My sister mm -hmm. and I both came over to a boarding school in Winchester called St. Swithin's. Um, and yeah, that was a bit of a culture shock. <laughs> a bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the weather, yeah. first of all. Um, and I mean, I joke about it, but um, my name is obviously Chibundu. And the first sort of classmate I met 
at St. Susan's. The first thing she said to me was, what's your name? And I said, my name is Chibundu. And she said, well, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that. Do you have a nickname? <laughs> and so it was oh, like wow. a rechristening from like the very first moment of arriving on, <laughs> on foreign soil. Um, but I mean, it was there were some fun bits as well. I don't think I would have been published so young. So I signed my first book deal when I was 19. I don't think I would have been published so young if I hadn't come to school in England um, because... I had teachers that encouraged me, that supported me with my writing and my creative writing. And I think in Nigeria, I might have been pushed towards the sciences or something a bit more practical or useful. Mm, so, yeah. yeah. So how did your writing journey begin then? Did it start in Nigeria or did it start when you moved here? Um, so it definitely started in Nigeria. Um, my mom was excellent. In fact, both my parents, they bought books for us. Um, and so I always had access to lots and lots of books. And I think that's natural. And talking to most writers, it's a common theme. When you read a lot, at some point, you think, why don't I give this writing thing a go? And that's exactly what I did. So I think mm. when I, I was 10, when I started my first novel. And kudos to both my parents. They took it seriously like they didn't go oh my gosh we have a child genius we have the next Shakespeare in our house so like they didn't give me like a big head but I remember and again because I grew up with so much extended family around I had cousins who were in university and they always had their uni there was only one computer in the house and so they had their projects and their university projects like mm. you know their assignments and their coursework but no one was ever allowed to kick me off the computer when I was writing so my writing on the family computer was treated as a legitimate you know sort of endeavor wow. um, and so yeah in that yeah. sense they really really encouraged me to just yeah to just go go for it. So then after you moved here when you were 14 um at what point were you in your writing journey? So at that point, um, so one thing that was really encouraging, my mom <laughs> entered me for a competition with an organisation called the British Council. It was a writing competition and there was a non-fiction category and a fiction category. And I came second in the fiction category and third or something in the non-fiction category. And it was a really big deal. Like I went with my school and I think it was even in the news, in like the newspapers. Um, and so that was a big sort of boost to my writing confidence. And then when I moved to England, I think something interesting happened. So I'd come to England on holiday while I lived in Nigeria. And I think it was common to people of my background or class or whatever you want to call it to always look to the west for inspiration and so we watched a lot of american cartoons i read a lot of british novels yeah. and i mean my parents bought the books for me that they had read in their childhood so in a sense the books i had been reading were quite colonial so enid blyton or charles dickens or lamb's tales by shakespeare that sort of stuff um and I actually didn't yeah. read African writers properly until I moved to England. So I remember I read Things Fall Apart for the first time in boarding school in England. And it wasn't that I hadn't seen the book. It wasn't that I didn't know of Chinua Achebe. I knew of him. But 
I just felt he wasn't cool. He wasn't exciting. He wasn't... What was exciting and cool mm. and aspirational was the Amanda Bynes show or <laughs> Johnny Bravo or whatever. <laughs> um, and so when I moved to England... Um, I started looking back to Nigeria for inspiration. And so my earliest work was always set in... So the novels I was writing from 10 and onwards, my main characters were white. I mean, can you imagine that? I was a black Nigerian African child growing up surrounded by black people. And that's how powerful <laughs> cultural images are. So literally, I did not have any examples. Yeah. I, I didn't know any white people. I didn't have any white friends. And yet, you know, the stories I was producing... They, all the characters were white because I'm, I, the world of the imagination, I'd been surrounded by so much sort of Western imagery. And so, of course, like my characters were called like Brigitte <laughs> or whatever. Um, and yeah, it wasn't <laughs> until I moved to England that my, my fiction changed and I started looking back home for inspiration. What was going through your mind when you, you made that switch and had that realization that, hang on a minute, I'm writing about you know, white characters, all my imaginations are white. One could say it's quite peculiar that that happened after you moved to England and not mm. while you were in Nigeria. First of all, there was the nostalgia. So you just the missing home. And mm. I suppose when you're in a place, you don't really see it because you're just so involved in it. And I think, yeah, moving to England wow. provided that distance. And I think I also became more proud of being Nigerian. There's a certain sort of awakening and I think it was because the girls in my boarding school, I mean they were very lovely, they were very kind, but no, not all of them. I mean they were girls. They were normal teenage girls. But they were also like particularly ignorant mm. about sort of Nigeria and all these sort of anywhere. And I remember first of all they were surprised by our English and I was like, well there's something called the British Empire. Um, your ancestors, you know, <laughs> decided to carry their language all over the world. So this is why you don't need to be surprised by the fact that I speak English. Um, and then also things like, I remember there was yeah. one of my friends was doing a project um, on an African country. And so she chose Nigeria because I was Nigerian. Yeah, she actually was going to do the project on Kenya. And then I arrived and being a Nigerian, she thought, well, let me switch it to Nigeria because um, there's actually a Nigerian in our year now. So I can actually ask her questions instead of just Googling. But the problem was mm. she had she already had this fixed idea of what she was going to find. And I guess she started with Kenya. So she wanted to make it like animal themed. And so she just started asking. It was so bizarre. She was like, do you have elephants in Nigeria? And we actually do have elephants in Nigeria. I have discovered there is a West African elephant. But I grew up in Lagos, so I certainly never saw any elephants in the wild. And I was like, well, no, we don't have elephants. And so yeah. she was like, do you have giraffes? And do you have rhinoceroses? And it was like Noah's Ark. She went through all the animals. And I just kept saying, no, like, what? what? I don't understand. I just don't understand. And so after she got to the end of her list, you know, she was she was quite frustrated because, you know, she had this safari theme and Nigeria was just not fitting with her safari theme. And so she asked me a question. She was like, well, right. what do you have? And it's so interesting, obviously, at 14 or 15. 
I could not articulate a response to that question. But the idea that we don't have anything in Nigeria mm. because we don't have rhinos or cheetahs or giraffes, it's sort of that sort of... Um, and it, it was embedded in her. It wasn't conscious, but it's a sort of cultural arrogance that if I don't find what I'm looking for in your culture, then your culture has nothing to offer. And so I'm looking for animals and your culture doesn't have animals. So, well, we dismiss the whole wow. of Nigeria. Um, and obviously, we're teenagers, so you can't... It couldn't be articulated as sort of precisely as this. But obviously now I know like, you know, Lagos is like a cultural center, like, you know, culture from Nigeria has influenced, whether it's music, whether it's in film, whether it's in fashion, mm. you know, there's just so much, um, so much cultural production, you know, the writers from Nigeria, Chebe, Shoinka, you know, but I, I didn't, I didn't have the tools to respond, you know, I just, I just At thought, what time, do you mean? Yeah. I didn't have the tools to respond. It's, it's so, it's so, it's annoying actually. So then... How did you emerge from boarding school? How did that affect you as a, as a teenager? Because, you know, like I think teenage years as a girl, as a woman, you know, it's hard enough, let alone having a complete culture shock. And then you're dealing with those kind of conversations where your name is not being pronounced properly. You're having to change it. Um, people are asking you questions about your country. You can't articulate what you want to say. How did that affect you? Did it have an effect on your confidence, your self-esteem? So I was talking with a friend about this, actually. So mm. when I was in Nigeria, obviously I was getting to be a teenager. You know, I was just entering my first bloom as a beautiful, wonderful specimen. And then I moved to an English boarding school. And like, I was totally not the standard of beauty. Totally, totally, totally. Nobody was looking at me. I remember wow. the first dance I went for. Um, and because there was a boys' school down the road, so every once in a while we'd have a dance with them. And I was like, mm -hmm. wow, I am a wallflower. This dance has lasted for two hours. Nobody has come to talk to me. Nobody has come to ask me to dance. Uh. And, you know, I said to um, someone actually that it was actually a really useful time for me because like it was a useful time creatively I think definitely when I was in Nigeria we were all getting to that stage where it was like who is dating who and who likes who and who is getting a valentine's gift and blah blah mm. blah and that stuff when you're a teenager it actually takes up a lot of your time and it takes up a lot of your energy and a lot of your thinking space yeah um but that was like totally removed from the equation for me because nobody was checking for me <laughs> and so I had all this headspace and I think I've actually been the most creative so many things that I'm doing now um I started in boarding school so I directed a play I wrote and produced and directed my own play I ran something called a gospel choir for four years. Um, I started a short story collection that didn't, hasn't been published, but I also started the book that became my first novel. And so I suppose in my free time, I just had time and space to create. So even though like my ego was incredibly bruised <laughs> by four years mm. of not being on sort of the attractiveness radar, it was definitely such a useful and important time for me creatively. I guess what I find amazing about this is that, call it, you didn't allow like the, the experience that you had in boarding school to affect you 
uh, in that sense. Like you're saying your ego was bruised, but besides that, like despite of it, you were still able to tap into, you had like this inner knowing to know, like, I know I, I still, I have something to offer um, and I'm just going to put all my energy into that. I just really, really admire that about you. Can't mm. say that that's how I felt mm. <laughs> in my younger years. Mm. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm 31 now. Of course it affected me at the mm. time. I remember like, so in the period after I left boarding school and again, sort mm. of after you start reading like Franz Fanon and you start reading um, people like, uh, gosh, his name escapes my mind, Senghor, who, the Negritude Movement, all of that, you start engaging with these thinkers, Maya Angelou, whoever, you know, I began to look back yeah. on some of the incidents that happened when I was in boarding school. And I was like, that was racist. That was racist. Mm. <laughs> and you yes. know, sometimes <laughs> coming from a Nigerian <laughs> context, you don't even understand yeah. because we don't, we don't really have black and white. So it's only after the fact that you're like, oh yeah. my gosh. And it's funny because I would get into these, all these conversations with my white friends trying to get them to admit that X, Y, Z were racist. But we were also coming from the same situation. And so, like, they hadn't evolved yet. Like, I remember, you know, having, like, a conversation about how, like, you know, the N-word was used casually around me. And they were just sort of... I I don't even know what they were arguing. And they were saying that, oh, well, it wasn't just, like you know, black people that like, you know, if you were, if you were overweight or if you were, you would also be teased. And I just thought, wow, like they just refused to, they're like, oh, if you had, you know, red hair, you would also be teased and say like, I was just like, wow. Um, and there was right. and of course there's so a lot of like defensiveness. A thing. Yes. There was a lot of defensiveness every time I tried to bring up, you know, sort of experiences that I thought were racist while I was in boarding school. Um, but then at the same time, Part of it is my faith and sort of reflecting on like forgiveness and um, where mm. where do you stop holding something that happened when you were 16 or 17 or 18? Obviously, if I meet these people today and they still have those views, then of course I don't want them. I don't want them in my space. But it was for me, it was almost like, I mean, I stopped talking pretty much by and large to most of my friends for boarding school for maybe like a couple of years because I was, you know, I was so angry. Um, and I think wow, you okay. also have to release people so you can release yourself. Like now I can't, I can't talk about it with, with banter and sort of talk about what I got from it and, you know, what was bad about it. And so it doesn't mean that the experience was, was good. It was wrong. Some of those things that happened, you know, and all of that, you know, people, especially the school should have had more policies to deal with race and racism. Cause and mm-hmm. I, I say it all the time in boarding school, they had so many, um, policies for eating disorders policies for bullying policies for everything under the sun you can think of right but no policies to address yeah. race you know um and so like they, they didn't mm. have the mechanisms and as i said you know when someone used the n-word um casually around me i didn't even know who to report this incident to like you know there was just nothing wow. um for me it's been sort of especially like just this sort of thing about forgiveness and not always having this anger and because it's inside you and I don't want all this sort of rage and anger. And it's something that it's definitely a journey with me, how to say something that has happened, that has been done against you is wrong, but not carry that burden for the rest of, of your life, basically. basically. And yeah, I think yes, yeah. Faith, Faith definitely has helped prayer, 
meditating on the word of God, scripture, um, that's really helped me. That's so good, Chibundo. I think uh, over the last, you know, couple of years, you know, the whole race discussion is, you know, everybody that's wanted to brush it under the carpet, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the time for that has now passed and it, people are now starting to have those conversations. Um, but it's really refreshing to hear that you're releasing the anger because, mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, uh, at the end of the day, if you hold on to it, it does end up affecting you. And it's just mm-hmm. such a heavy burden to carry. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, and I just really appreciate you talking about um, the ability to just release and, and rise above it and forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's so good. Can you tell me about how you got your first novel published? What was that journey been like for you? And the whole like, you know, writing process and the publishing process? Um, so my first novel is called The Spider King's Daughter. So I actually wrote it in my final year of A-levels. Um, so <laughs> instead of studying for my exams, wow. I was writing writing a novel in secret. <laughs> um, and after my A-levels, um, my sister had, my oldest sister, Dilichi, she bought me a book called The Writers and Artists Yearbook. And it's the book I recommend to anyone who wants to be published in the traditional route because it gives you all the information mm-hmm. you need about how to find an agent, how to approach an agent, um, and what to look for when you're selecting within which agents to approach. Um, so, for example, some agents specialize in children's books. Um, they might take an adult novelist on who's writing for adults, but they're probably not the best agent for you, you know. So it sort of gives you a list of agents mm. and how to approach them. Um and so I sent a query letter, I guess that's what it's called, to my current agent, Georgina Capo, and I sat on something called the slush pile. It was a blind submission, so I didn't know anyone in publishing, um, and I just sent them mm. an email saying, hi, my name is Chibun Donizo, and I think I, I may try to put my age front and center. I've always been good at, like... PR. I think that's one of my strengths, actually good at telling my own story. I was like, I'm a teenager. So basically, like for me to have written a novel, this is like a novelty. So mm. at least take take note of it. So I put my mentor, I put my age sort of front and center. Um, and yeah, I sent yeah. it to my agent and two others. Um, and then my agent got back to me after six weeks. It was like an agonizing wait. It takes a long time to get a response when you're on the slush pile because you, you're basically just on a pile, <laughs> on a pile of manuscripts. Yeah. Um, and my agent got yeah. back to me and said, yeah, I, we'd like to represent you and this is on and the other. And then the journey started from there. I worked with my agent on editing the novel for about six months. And then we sent it off to publishers mm-hmm. and a publisher called Faber and Faber um, made the highest offer and I went with them. And yeah, it was a, it was a good two books. I had two books published with them. Did you feel like, you know, the whole issues with race um, and you feeling like you're singled out and everything that you've experienced in your boarding school, did that impact your confidence in reaching out? Have you noticed or seen that it's harder for people of color or people who aren't, you know, traditional British white um, to get those kind of things? So as I said, my, my boarding school experience was very interesting. So all the mm. negative experiences I had came from interaction with my peers, but not from my teachers. My teachers loved me <laughs> at boarding school and they uh-huh. were so encouraging and so supportive. And that's why I said it's sort of it's sort of a mixed bag. So like most of the 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 friction I had was from 
relating with sort of the girls my age but my teachers oh my gosh I mean they used to read I remember one time I wrote something for um an assignment and you know like in the class at the beginning the, the teacher read out my work to the whole class as an example a shining star of prose oh no my teachers look I was I was deputy yeah. head girl at boarding school like oh no no I had I had all the gold stars from the teachers oh there was a lot of encouragement mm. so when it came to actually like my ability and my writing ability oh no like they would always in fact I now feel sorry for the other students they would always be like oh yes you know Chib's work that was my nickname Chib's work is amazing i used to read like <laughs> i used to read like um i was a minor celebrity in in school i used to read like poetry in assembly i used to oh no 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 uh, mm. my teachers oh they loved me they they actually really did so like i had like my chaplain rev hem oh gosh they all supported me i remember and even till now rev hem comes from my readings he comes from my book launches um and I remember when oh, I went back that's to... that's so lovely. Yeah, it's amazing. I went back to wow. school once to give a talk um, or something. I don't know. I'd gone back to do something. <laughs> and I went into the staff room and they had some of my press clippings on the board. So, no, no, no. The teachers, yeah, they were, oh. they were really... They were amazing. Um, they just oh. had no idea how to deal, deal with racial things arising between girls of different mm. races. Um, that's yeah. really great to hear. Where do you get your inspiration when it comes to writing? What does that inspiration process look like? And also, what does the writing process look like? So I read a lot, actually. So I've reached the mm. point in writing that I have no personal experience to mine from anymore because my daily life is actually incredibly boring. Um, so, for example, this podcast interview <laughs> is the most exciting thing that's happened to me this week. <laughs> Um, I think so for example the Spider King's daughter I drew from my experiences of being like a, a young teenager in Lagos the protagonist in the Spider King's daughter is 17 but after that really um, I rely on interviews so if there's a topic that interests me I would generally try and find someone who's lived experiences sort of has that topic in it and then I'll interview them um I read a lot, so like I subscribe to everything, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Financial Times, mm. Check the Guardian, because there's always sort of stories and always things to spark your interest. Um, and then obviously just reading other people's novels, other people's books. I've started reading a lot of nonfiction now as well, because I think personal stories are so interesting. How do you make sure that your voice isn't lost when you're reading so much of other people's work? Uh, do you find that that's a tricky area to manage or is it very straightforward for you? Yeah, I mean, this is a big sort of theme in literature, creative work, like the anxiety of influence, like you're anxious about being influenced mm. by other people's work. But I'm like, I don't know, for me, that's like, I would think I'd be more about the hubris of, of influence. Like, of course, we're all influenced by everybody. Like, you know, and what's original yeah. is that, when all these different things pass through my own consciousness and my own subjectivity, then something new, something different comes about, but it's different with ties to what has come before. Um, especially when it comes to creative work, you know, it's, they talk about how there's only seven stories or there's only, it's like, um, 
the thought that you can create something completely original if you did no one would understand it because it wouldn't have any, <laughs> it wouldn't have any relation to anything that's gone on before i mean like first of all just the fact that you're writing a novel already you're in the tradition of writing that's gone on before and so on and so forth so no i don't mm. um i don't really worry about it about being influenced in fact i try to like read as widely as possible so like i'm drawing from a wide wide range of references i know as well that you're not just you know you're a historian you're an author and you're also a singer and a musician and <clears throat> what i find so inspiring is that like you're a multi-passionate person um how have you managed to you know successfully have those outlets for yourself I love that multi-passionate person. I'm going to take that and mm. make it into a t-shirt. Trademark <laughs> Sahar. <laughs> I wish it was my word. I don't think it's mine. But yes, go for it. I, mm -hmm. when I was 16, I came runner up in a national singing competition called J Factor. It was a gospel singing competition, but it had a massive reach and I almost got signed actually. I was scouted. It was all very exciting. And my my dad and I, we went to this wow. independent record label. And my dad happened to be in England at the time, but both my parents lived in Nigeria. And my dad basically just said, no, that this is not really the place for a 16-year-old because my parents didn't live in England. And so it would have been me sort of operating in this quite grown-up environment without parental supervision, more, more mm, or less. And okay. I think he was actually yeah. spot on and really wise to make that call because when you see and hear all this stuff about Me Too and how sort of young girls were exploited in certain industries and all of that, I'm glad that, yeah. you know, like I wasn't exposed to that actually. And also I think the music industry is a place where if you don't know yourself, people will always be projecting things onto you like oh wear this or do this or say this mm -hmm. and I mean I joke about it but like you know you're not going to see me dancing on the stage in my underwear because somebody has told me that that's what sells okay <laughs> if you ever see me dancing around in pants and bra it is because I want to wear the pants and bra it's not because somebody is telling me oh you need to look this way or you need to you know but definitely at 16 you're more impressionable than this that and the other so like yeah he was 100% right. But yeah. then at the same time, though, I also thought like maybe the opportunity had passed a little bit um, because um, at 19, I signed my book deal. And then I sort of seemed to just take this other track in life. And then I'm a writer and then I'm going on book tour and all these places. And what I found very interesting is that like at first, anyway, people are very, mm. they're very skeptical when somebody who's known in one field says they want to do something else. Um, so yes. like, you know, if yes. you're a singer and you say, you know, you want to be if a fashion person, you know, they're very cynical. They're like, oh, is this one? Does, you know, you like, yes. they feel like it's a fad or you're not doing it for sort of genuine reasons. People are just really skeptical. And I remember there would always be like, just a little bit of, of pushback. Um, you know, so like people would say things mm. like, I remember one time I sang at one of my readings and the first question from an audience member was, you know, wh why are you singing? You know, like, you know, what, what why this, like, basically almost sort of asking are me, you like, serious? I'm telling you, people are so rude, you know, and again, I always felt like yeah. I was trying to shoehorn my 
singing into literary spaces that didn't want it you know we want you to be a writer we've invited you here as a writer so talk about your books and please vacate the stage <laughs> yeah um, and uh-huh. see what's so interesting about what people think about what you're doing is that it's actually a it's it's actually a barrier that is only in your mind you know here are some real barriers to me so this is me now telling my here are some real barriers to me trying to pursue a music career okay maybe a i mm-hmm. can't sing b i can't write songs my songs are rubbish c i don't have the money to pay a producer to make the songs d mm-hmm. i don't have these are real barriers fake yeah. barriers are Somebody thinks that you're a writer, so you shouldn't be a singer. So, and so what? (laughs) Who is this person? (laughs) Where do they know you from? Are they funding your music career? Are they like what? What? What is it? Who are these people that are inside your mind telling you that? Hey, they don't think that writers should be singing. That is their business. That that is their business, uh, and that is an extension of the limitations oh. that they have put on themselves. That you can only be one thing. I said no, 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 no. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if I want to be an astronaut tomorrow, then I'm going to space. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am going to space. Oh, but it was definitely something that I had to push on. through, push through in my mm. own self as well. I sort of realized this is not a real barrier. So like, you know, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, and you know, they couldn't go here, the loss, those are real barriers people do. And when you face them, of course, you can still do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So you will overcome them and if you face those very real barriers. But don't tell me you're not going to do something because somebody asked you a funny comment at your reading or said, why are you doing so? What's, what's my business with them? I'm never going to see that person again. Who knows where that man is today? So I, he cannot stop me from going where I need to go to in life <laughs> so. come on oh i feel like shouting and just throwing everything <laughs> in the room that is so good so good and i think like uh, i can resonate and relate to that so much because i too am a multi-passionate person mm-hmm. and um like i've had those barriers and they're real but like i love how you put it it's like that barrier is actually completely fake it's fake it's not real. It's the self-image you have of yourself mm-hmm. or what other people say that is external to you that you're now taking in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love that. Like in what you've said right there, I feel it's so loaded. Like I'm, I'm hoping whoever's listening or watching right now is that they're completely liberated mm-hmm. from any fake barriers. <laughs> you yes. can be anything you want to be. If you want to yes. be an astronaut, you fly a rocket tomorrow. Like I love that. I love that so yes. much. Thank there's you for a, saying there's that. A, there's a poem we studied in. I don't even remember who the author is. Someone like Tennyson or Wordsworth. And there's this hmm. phrase, mind forged manacles. And sometimes we have shackles that is, is our mind. It's, it's not that it's because it manifests in a real way. It stops us from doing things, but they are here. They are mind forged wow. manacles. Yeah. So Chibundu, how would you say, and we've touched on this um, mm. as you're speaking, but like how has your faith impacted you as a woman? How has it impacted you in your work and in, in your creative endeavors as well? Oh my gosh, it's my secret sauce. Except it's not a secret, it's, hey. open, to every, it's open to everybody. But <laughs> eh, yeah. this creative industry, let me tell you something. Oh 
rejection. Mm. Rejection is part of the process, you know. So like Come even on. till tomorrow, there are some things you I would try for. They'll say, ah oh, no, sorry. I say, but but excuse me, I have a billboard in Times Square. What do you mean you're telling me no? It doesn't matter. There are some places you'll pitch <laughs> to and they will still turn you down. Yeah. And you have to have mm. a sense of self-worth that is rooted not in the fluctuations of your career because sometimes it will go up and then when it goes up, you, you too, you will go up. When it goes down, you too, you will go down. And you will constantly mm. have a life that is like, like a sign graph. Um, yeah. And so like something like I always tell myself, you know, it's something I'm not my achievements. I'm not my accomplishments. I'm not my failures also. I am a child of God. My identity so is rooted good. in something that is eternal, something that does not shake. And then also like, it gives me perspective. So like you try for something and you don't get it. I tell myself everything works together for my good. So that means like, I believe that God is the one that is planning my life from beginning to end. And so like, so not, no opportunity, no thing. It, it just releases and it removes. And I'm not saying I operate like this all the time, but it just removes like a tension and an anxiety from your life. Like I see other creatives, like they're like, oh, if I don't get this, if I don't get this is my one chance. I said, nothing is my one chance because promotion Come and on. opportunity, it comes from God. So nobody can tell me that, oh, if Woo! you don't do this, you're not going to get this. I said, look, who are you? You, you? Like, because human beings can talk. They they can talk like they're the ones that can do and undo. I said, sorry for you. You're a finite creature that is going to live and is going to die. You cannot do and undo anything in my life. And like, it's really, really helped me because like, and I mean, I'm not saying that I don't get disappointed and I won't cry if I wanted something. Mm. Um, but like, it's just that I know that you know, there's something bigger than me that I'm attached to. There's someone bigger than me that I'm attached to. And I feel, yeah, it's, it's giving me, um, I, I call it staying power. Because you, you, for me, you need something in this career that is so up and down. You just need someone to just root yourself in and be like, you know what? I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Going to be okay. Yes. <laughs> so good. You you mentioned uh, in the creative industry, you mm -hmm. you face rejection. Mm -hmm. All of us in our stories, we have a villain, whether it's internal, external. What would you say has been um, the villain, the biggest villain in your story that you've had to overcome? Mm. I mean, so, so like, far again, you know. So in all these things, so I said no beef, no, no, no aggro. But basically, I moved publisher from my. Mm second to my third novel and to be honest i've talked mm. about it with my old publishers there's well well cool well friendly well on speaking terms um but at the time it definitely felt like sort of like a massive you know rejection a massive blow to my sense of self sort of having to to um, find a new publisher with my third novel um mm. and that was um and for me actually that was a catalyst for me to go and have therapy actually and sort of speak to someone about this up and down because I, I I realized that because the blow was so was so deep that um mm. you know it made me because I again I invested too much of my identity in being a writer being a published author da, 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 da. and so like I remember going through mm -hmm. sort of going through sessions with my therapist and she was like when 
you root your identity in, in things like this, then of course the, the blow becomes, it's not just that, oh, my book didn't sell to this publisher. It becomes like, I didn't sell. <laughs> or like, I, it, it's now Chibundu. Yeah. I'm, I'm the thing I created as opposed to, you know, this is a book and it's separate from you, who you are. And I mean, that's something we did a lot of work mm. on, which is why, as I said, this sort of like, I'm a child of God. You know, th- those are things that you affirm, things that you say to yourself over and over again so that when, when things that are temporary in life come and try and shake you, you know that I'm attached to something that is eternal. Um, so yeah, this, this is all sorts of work that, um, so yeah, all this thing I'm, I'm just saying to you as if I just woke up. I didn't just wake up like this. So it was many, many, <laughs> many, many sessions of talking through, of crying. <laughs> the rejection me. <laughs> but you see, but that's life. See, now we're laughing about it. We're laughing about yeah. it, you know. And that just shows yeah. you because it, it was a temporary thing. But you took it as something that was the whole narrative of your life. Uh-uh. I didn't even know where I was going to go to with it third novel so you know yeah that's um so what would you say then let's moving on from the hardest thing you face mm-hmm. what has been the main the one thing or the main thing that you're most proud of um so far in your creative journey hmm. i'm really proud of my show 1991 um so i did it at the south bank and for me, that show is like an expression of everything I do. And I love what it was an expression. So it was called 1991. And it was basically the story of my life in eight essays. Um, my life so far at the time when I wrote it. And it was done in eight mm-hmm. essays. And then each chapter of my life had music that was relevant to the time of my life. Um, and so there was music and there was dancing. So, for example, in the chapter on growing up Christian in Nigeria, in the Pentecostal church, I then had, I would read about that experience and then intermix would be music about the songs we sort of sang in church and the call and response and how our African culture was interwoven into our expression of faith and all of this. Um for me, it was like all the disparate strands of myself, all the multi-passionate things that people said don't go together. But of course it goes together because it is inside me. It's all inside. I'm every woman. It's all in me. And so I danced, I sang, I did a reading, I did some hosting and emceeing, just everything. It was so like, for me, that's definitely been something. And I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. We did it twice at the South Bank um, and hopefully something will bring back you know the pandemic sort of you know put away live performance and all of that so hopefully we'll bring it back um what would you say to someone who is starting out or in their path of like writing or starting their creative journey or if they're multi-passionate what would your main advice be to them what's the main thing they need to have um, so the main thing they need to have is to start. As I said, is this sort of mind forge manacles. And I see it a lot of times when people say, oh, I want to, I want to, I want to. And the brilliant thing about creative stuff is that the barrier to entry is actually really low. So I remember when I started this music journey, I was mm. thinking about all the things I didn't have. I don't have a music deal. I don't have it this. I don't have it that. You know, I don't have any sort of presence in the music industry. But what do I have? 
I have a piano in my house and I have a pen and a notepad. So you want to release an album, but what is the first step towards releasing the album? Writing the songs before you even think about who to approach with it. Or, you know, so you're already thinking about all the things that you don't have as opposed to what you do have. Same thing with publishing. I talk to a lot of people. They'll tell me about, oh, it's difficult to get an agent. It's difficult to this. I said, but have you written the book first? Write the book first before you start thinking about how difficult it is to be published and so on and so forth. Um, and sometimes you wait for things to be perfect. I'm speaking to myself. My sisters and I, we've been wanting to start a podcast for ages and we keep waiting for like the perfect time, but it's like, and the perfect equipment. And, and it's, it's like people record podcasts on their phones now. I mean, you can yeah. grow from there, but start, start. Yeah. Okay, Chibundo, we're rounding up the episode today, but before we send you off, we have a tradition where we play this game called mm -hmm. Give Me Three. And I'm just going to ask you quick fire questions. And I need you to speak before you think. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. First question. Give me three laws you would pass if you were a dictator. Go. Um, Three-day weekend. Um, oh, yeah. All hairdressers at hairdressing school need to train in black hair. It can be optional. This is in the UK. I'm, I'm dictator of the UK. Oh. And. Yes. Oh, what's my last one? Youth centres. Youth centres across the UK. There needs to be one within like a 10-minute walk of young people's homes. A youth centre for recreation and hanging out and development for young people. Those are my three laws. You would make a great dictator, actually. Thank you. Very Thank selfless, I, might I say. I think so. Yeah. I think so too. I'm vouching for you. I'm vouching. <laughs> Um, give me three ways to finish the sentence. You haven't lived until you have tried. Jollof rice. Until One. you have tried Jesus. Until you have <laughs> tried to ride a bicycle. Oh, do you, do you have a bike? Do you like riding? I do. I love cycling. Oh, okay. Give me the final one. Give me the three worst jobs you can think of. Um, I don't want to call it a worst job. I've actually done this job. I worked in a care home and that stuff is hard, man. It actually takes a level of Ooh, yeah. selflessness and grace to clean somebody's poo poo that is not your child. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and like, people that do that job, they need to be paid more. They need to be paid more than bankers because one day, Everybody's going to be old. Come on. And you're going to wish that you had paid care workers more. Care workers more. Um, this is it. Oh, yeah. Um, I have also been, these are real jobs I've had. I've been an entertainer at a children's party. I was Barney. You know, one of, you wear the, the costume, like with the, with the thing and like, it is horrible inside those things. Like, it's so claustrophobic, and I'm actually really glad I survived and didn't die because the world would have missed out on all this greatness because of that You're Barney not. costume. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, yeah, shout out to children's parties entertainers. And some children are really badly behaved, and they come and, like, whack you. And I'm like, yeah, just because I'm wearing a costume, you can't just come and whack me. Um, third worst job... I guess it will be like people that like when something goes well, they don't get the praise. But when something goes badly, they get the blame. 
medical staff and people like that. I do think about it like yeah, frontline workers. Most of the time, yeah, people any take front it for, of like front of yeah, yeah, people mm. take it for granted when they do their job right. But like, if they don't do their job right, then all the all the blame goes on them. So yeah. Tubundo, where can people find you online? Uh, and are is do you have anything coming out in the next coming months or weeks? Um, so you can find me on Instagram at chibundu.onyuzo. I deleted my Twitter because Twitter is bad vibes. Bad vibes. <laughs> um, so that's the only social media I'm on at the moment. Well, okay. I was finding it bad vibes for myself. Um mm-hmm. And I do have a new single coming out in the coming months. It's called Coming Home. And I am really, really excited about it. Um, so, yeah, watch this space. Well, on that note, we're going to end the show today. Thank you so much, Shibunda, for joining us. For You have been such an incredible inspiration. And the banter was <laughs> class, top class. Thank you for that. Thanks for having <laughs> me. As I said, this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me this week. So, yeah, this was fun. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in today. All the resources mentioned in the show are linked below if you're watching on YouTube and linked in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then I want to invite you to help us spread our message by choosing one of four ways. One, subscribe to the YouTube channel or the podcast. Two, leave a review if you're listening to the podcast. It really helps. Three, let me know in the comments below what the key takeaways were for you in today's episode. And four, Share this episode with one friend who could use a little bit of courage today. And if you want to binge our episodes, may I suggest you watch this episode right here if you're watching on YouTube. That's it. Until next time, don't forget to live courageously and dare forward.